0: It's wonderful to be back with you all again here at Grace Charger. I uh, bring greetings on behalf of Covenant Hope Church. We're thankful for you all. We're thankful for your prayers for us even today. We're thankful for your partnership in the gospel here in the United Arab Emirates. So we we love you guys. We pray for you regularly, and we're thankful for you. Um, If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Haggai, the book of Haggai. If you get to the beginning of the New Testament, go back a couple books, you'll find Haggai. It's a small minor prophet towards the end of the Old Testament, just two chapters. So we'll be looking at Haggai today. As Pastor Anand said, I am originally from Aberdeen in Scotland, but I grew up here in Dubai. Uh, My parents moved here in 1989. I was just, just a baby, just a little younger than our own daughter, Charlotte. And so I remember the church back in those days when we were meeting in Dubai in a villa. And I remember vividly in 1997, I was 10 years old, and I remember that the Lord moved in the heart of the ruler of Dubai, His Highness Sheikh Maktoum, to grant land and permission for an evangelical church building to be built. They gave permission for us to be able to gather in that center, different congregations to gather in that building to worship God together. And so it was a wonderful time to celebrate. There was much joy. And God has graciously worked to establish centers in other emirates too, like in Rasulkema in the last 10 years. But let's keep praying for more. Let's keep praying for God to work in the heart of the ruler here in Sharjah for you all to have a building of your own as well. Amen? Amen. Centers like these are important, not because of the building themselves, but they are places that churches can gather in Arabic or in English, in Tagalog or Tamil or Hindi or Korean or Chinese or Nepalese, and they can worship the Lord. They can worship our God, our Creator. What a great privilege we have of seeing the Lord building His church from peoples all over the world nations far and wide. And I mention this all because in a similar way, God moved in the heart of the pagan King Cyrus. He gave permission for the Israelites who were in exile, gave them permission to return to their homeland, to the land that God had promised them, to return from captivity and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed to worship God. God's people returned with excitement to the land, but they were opposed in their work. It wasn't easy, and eventually their excitement gave way to apathy towards the work of building God's house. They focused on other things. They had other concerns, and almost 20 years had passed by the time The Lord spoke to the prophet Haggai. Twenty years of the temple lying in ruins. So God raised up his prophet Haggai, and he gave Haggai four messages for his people. But before we consider these four words from the Lord, let's go to him in prayer one last time and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are, are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So God spoke four times, four words, four messages to the prophet Haggai. And each of these words in different ways, as we'll see, was a call to consider something. It's a call to think deeply, to to reflect. Not something we can do in a hurried fashion, but something that takes time. So even as you go from here today and uh, go about the rest of your week, let me encourage you to consider the things that you've heard here today. Take time to ponder them in your heart, to reflect on them, and to hear what God might have to teach you. If we summarize all four of these messages, it would be a call to consider our ways and to consider God's glorious promises. That's my summary of the whole book of Haggai. It's a call to consider your way and to consider God's glorious promises. Listen to the first word, the first message that the prophet Haggai received. I'm going to read it. It's all of chapter one. It's the longest message. Follow along as I read it. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day, of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This first chapter, God's first message to the people, is a call to consider their ways, to consider their ways and to consider their priorities. In verse 1, we're given a, a very precise date to tell us when this came, when this word came to the prophet Haggai. And we actually know that specific date. It was August 29th, 520 BC. So we just celebrate a few weeks ago the the anniversary of this message from God, that God spoke to his people. And it's amazing how repetitive the the text is. Did you notice that? That it's clear this message, it's it's not Haggai's message. This is God's message. Haggai is just the messenger boy. Did you notice that? You'll see it again and again as I read more of the messages. Over 25 times in this book, it says that it's the Lord's word and that God was the one who was speaking. This is God's word, and so we should pay close attention. We should take time to weigh it, to consider it carefully. And the same is true not just for the prophet Haggai, but the same is true for us as pastors. We're simply the messenger boys delivering God's word, delivering God's message. So every week, as you hear teaching here from God's word, pay close attention. Consider it carefully. God's message was delivered by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the governor, the leader And to Joshua, the high priest. And these three, the prophet, the priest, and the ruler, they were responsible for making sure that God's people heard his word and that they led God's people in obeying his word. God had brought the people back from exile to rebuild this temple in Jerusalem, but they faced opposition, as I mentioned, and they got distracted. They gave up following what God had called them to do. And it wasn't just a few weeks, years had gone by. Almost 20 years had gone by, and they were not doing what God had called them to do. And so God sarcastically asks, Is it time for you to work on your own houses while mine lies in ruins? They found time for home improvements, but God's temple was still a construction site. Look with me at verse 6, what God says to them. He says that they've sown much, but harvested little. They never have enough. They aren't satisfied. It's as though their wages were being kept in a bag with holes. where The money falls out, disappears. And then again, he repeats it later in verses 10 and 11. Look there. He says, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I've called for a drought on everything. What's happening? God is opposing them. God is keeping his word that he gave through Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law, that if they faithfully walked with him, If they faithfully walked closely with their God, he would bless them beyond measure. But if they disobeyed him, if they failed to walk faithfully and obediently, that God would bring curses upon them. And that's exactly what was happening. The people, they may have returned to the promised land, but they hadn't returned to the Lord. So what does God tell them that they should do? What does he command these people? It's repeated as well. Look in verse 5 and 7. Consider your ways. The people had a problem with misplaced priorities. They were apathetic about building God's house, but they were zealous for their own homes. They prioritized their own personal and physical well-being over their spiritual well-being and their devotion to the Lord. Without the temple, God's presence wasn't in their midst. They couldn't offer sacrifices for their sins. They couldn't worship the Lord their God in the way that he had instructed them. And the temple work had stopped for 20 years, 20 years without the right worship of God. It's easy for us to think about this scenario and to think that we wouldn't act this way, to think that we would be there at the site laying brick upon brick, even with the opposition that they were facing. But the reality is that we're often like them. We don't have a physical temple that we have to construct to complete, but God has given us commands. He's given us work to be working and doing. And how are we doing at prioritizing the work that God has called us to? That's really at the the heart of this first word from the Lord. He's he's calling them to consider their ways, to consider their priorities. And the passage gives us three ways that we can see where our priorities lie. First, look just at verse 2. The Lord says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Our priorities are seen in how we think about and how we steward the time that God has entrusted to us. We make time for things that we value, that we think are most important, right? Whether that's Netflix, striving for a promotion, sports that we enjoy, social media, we spend time on the things that we care about. Pastor John Piper said that one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day, on the day of judgment, that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Goodness, that's convicting to me. I hope it's convicting to you. Do you prioritize your physical well-being over your spiritual life? So, for example, some some mornings I miss reading my Bible, but I I never miss eating dinner or breakfast. There's nothing wrong with eating food, right, dinner or breakfast. I love dinner. But the reality that I don't miss that, but I sometimes miss reading my Bible, goes to show that I'm guilty of putting my physical well-being above my spiritual well-being, But Jesus tells us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to be ingesting the word of God as much as we need the food that's on our plates. Do you take as much time to carefully plan how you will be spiritually fed as you do about meal planning for your week? Are you content with having the spiritual equivalent of ramen noodles reheated? What about as a family? It's easy to prioritize family time. Family time is important. But is your first thought about how you spend time together with your family members, about how much fun you can have together as a family, or how you can grow in devotion to the Lord together? Again, fun is not bad. Charlotte and Hannah and I like to have fun, but it shouldn't be first. We should put the Lord first. Ask yourself, what's your greatest concern for your family and maybe your children? Is it good grades or is it godly character? And what about the church? Do you sacrifice time with God's people for less important things? Or is gathering for worship here on Sundays the top priority of your week, the most important time when you gather with the saints, when Christ is here in our midst by the power of His Spirit, and we can worship Him in spirit and truth? Your souls are fed through the Word of God being preached. We're not God. We're not infinite and unbounded by time, and so we must learn to say no to some things in order to say yes to the most important things. What does your use of time show about what is most important to you, what you're prioritizing? But time isn't the only aspect that we see here in this text that reveals our priorities. Look at verse 4. God says, "'Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses?' while this house lies in ruins. Our priorities were, are also seen in how we steward the resources and the treasures that God gives us. How we use our treasures reveals what we prioritize. These men and women had invested in their homes, not the Lord's house. One of the quickest ways to see what's really important in your life is to just look at your budget. Look at your budget or your bank account and to see where does your money go? What do you spend your money on? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so let me ask, are you giving regularly and sacrificially and joyfully to God's work in this church and beyond? Are you investing in things that will last into eternity? Or are you building up treasures that will fade away? Talk to a trusted friend in the church. Be brave enough to show them your budget or your bank details. Let them ask you questions about how you're spending your money. This is an area that we are so often, it feels so private and we fail to really be transparent about it. We fail to really consider it in light of the Lord. But how we spend our money reveals a lot about what is ruling in our hearts. We see our priorities in how we consider our time, how we spend our treasures, but we also finally see it here in how we use our talents. Verse 6 describes how they've been working hard. These people have been sowing much, but reaping little. And verse 9 says that they've busied themselves. They've been busy with renovations of their own homes. And so the people, they weren't lazy. It wasn't a problem of being idle that kept the temple from being built. No, they were busy. They were just busy serving themselves, not busy serving the Lord. So how are you using the the busyness of your lives? How are you using the gifts that God has given you, uh, the, the skills that he's given you? Are you using them for the service of the church? Are you using them to build other brothers and sisters up using them to care for saints. And maybe you think, well, what kind of skills do you mean, Mark? You know, I'm not, I'm not gifted in teaching. I'm not gifted at preaching. I don't have musical skills. I'm not confident at discipling other people. I'm not really great at asking questions. But let me be honest with you. Most of us are not born with natural gifts that require no effort, that they just, come, they just flow naturally from us. No, they develop over time. They develop with practice. We make mistakes. We fumble through and we learn from those mistakes. It takes humility to learn, to grow in serving and busying ourselves with doing good to others. But whatever is most important to us is what we are willing to work hard at, to serve what we treasure most. Let me ask, do you think that as the Israelites came back from exile to uh, the land of Judah, do you think that they felt particularly called to construction work? God gives varying gifts to be used for his glory. Ask yourself, how has God gifted you? Ask your friends. Ask someone wise in the church about how they see, what gifts they see in you. And strategize together about how can you use those gifts to serve one another well. Look for needs in the church and jump right in. Join the nursery. Pray for members. Ask your pastor or one of the deacons if there's any needs that you can help fill. This will please God when we use our talents to serve him. God calls them to consider their ways, and he does this not just so that they would think, but that he would lead them to repentance And if at this point in the sermon, you aren't convicted by how you have using your time, your talents, and your treasures, let me encourage you to keep considering. Keep thinking about your ways. Keep asking the Lord to reveal where you can serve him more faithfully. Because anything that comes between you and the Lord, that thing is, even good things, even seemingly good things that we prioritize above God is an idol that must be repented of. And that's exactly what the people did. We see that in verses 12 to 15 of the text. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The people feared God their Lord and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This is, this is Christianity 101. This is normal, everyday Christianity. It's turning from sin and obeying God's word. It's being convicted of where we're falling short and then seeking to obey the Lord. Verse 14 tells us that they did this because God stirred up their spirits, that it was God himself that worked this in their hearts. And we must remember that repentance is a gift from the Lord. It's a gift that we should praise the Lord for, and it's a gift that we should ask for more and more. We can ask the Lord to give to us tender hearts that are receptive to his word, that are convicted and that we would repent, but we can also ask for it for those around us, those that don't know the Lord yet, that they would repent for the very first time. God, by His Spirit and His Word, changed their priorities. He changed their hearts. He changed their affections. And that's how true change happens. That's where real change happens. God's Spirit applying His Word to our hearts so that we, first of all, fear the Lord, and love him more, and then that leads to a change of behavior, a change of life, of living, of obedience. But it didn't happen overnight. If you notice the date at the very beginning of this chapter and at the end, it tells us that it was 24 days after the God's word came. They took time to consider this word from the Lord. They weighed it, they thought about it, they considered it, and then they got to work. Take time to consider God's word. And let me encourage you to do the same. Take time to consider God's word. Don't rush over it. Ponder it. Think about it. And then seek to obey it. Did you notice God's promise there in verse 13? He says, I am with you. God doesn't promise that this won't be hard work. He doesn't promise that it won't be Uh, they won't be opposed. He promises that he is with them in their work. Just as Jesus promises us the very same thing in the great commission that he's given us. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises his permanent presence with us as we serve him. As we do the work that he's called us to, he's with us. He draws near to us and he empowers us. And we're told that the, that the result of this faithfully responding, faithfully serving God in verse 8 is that God would take pleasure in it, that God would be glorified. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want most, brothers and sisters? Is to please the Lord, to glorify His name. That's what will happen as a result of considering our ways and striving to obey God, so that it will please him, and it will glorify his name. Having considered their ways in chapter one, God calls them to consider God's temple in chapter two, verses one to nine. Look there as I read it. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the Lord the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, What an amazing word from the Lord. God again stirs up their minds to consider something. He asks another question. He asks them, who remembers the temple in its former glory? He reminds them of the past. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians 66 years earlier, and so only the oldest members of the remnant community that came back from exile would remember what Solomon's temple had been like. Kings and queens had come from afar to come and see this glorious temple. It was amazing. It was breathtaking. It was covered in gold and silver, but even more amazing than the gold and the silver was that God manifested his glory in that place. A great cloud came when the temple was dedicated and God showed himself to dwell among his people in Jerusalem. But about this temple, God asks them, what about this temple that you're building? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In the book of Ezra, it talks about them building this temple, and we're told that the older generation, those that remembered Solomon's temple, they wept aloud. They, because it couldn't compare with Solomon's temple. God's people were reminded of the former days, the glory days. It must have felt like they had gone backwards. We, we can be tempted to look back on glory days too, Remembering a season when our Christian lives or our community or our church seemed more encouraging. Maybe we saw more fruit in our lives. It's tempting to lose sight of what God is doing right now when we do that. But listen to what the Lord says. Listen to what God says. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Work, for I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you, my spirit remains in your midst. God is with them. It, it might not seem as impressive as the past. The temple really is nothing compared to Solomon's in comparison, but it pleases the Lord. It brings him glory as they work on it. And ministry in our lives can so often feel unimpressive like this. We can be discouraged. It feels like putting one brick on top of another, after one after the other, over and over again. Fruit can be hard to see, or maybe we won't even see the fruit for a long, long time. But brothers and sisters, be strong. Don't grow weary in doing good. God sees it. And it pleases Him. It brings glory to His name. God promises that He will shake the whole cosmos. He promises that the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land will be shaken. He's going to shake the nations. He's going to bring in all their treasures. And He promises that the latter glory will be greater even than the former. And He says that in this place, in this temple, they will have peace. God will bless their work, glorify his name among the nations, and God's promise unfolded through history. First, God turned the hearts of people in Haggai's day, the kings, to offer treasures to to help build the house that he had instructed, for the work to be completed so that they could worship their God, even pagan kings who didn't trust the Lord. But ultimately, God's plan to dwell among his people, to show him, show his glory to them, culminates in the sending of his son. We hear about it in John chapter one, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's glory never returned to this temple. But it came in a far greater way. God came to dwell among his people in the flesh. Jesus showed us God's glory incarnate. But where? Where is, where is the glory of the Lord seen today? Where does God where does his glory dwell now? Where do we experience Christ's presence? the amazing truth is that it's right here, brothers and sisters. It's right here in our midst. It's in the church. We read this text earlier from Ephesians and Paul explains, he says, your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And he uses this language of being built, right? built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The fulfillment of these things that we see in Haggai, of this temple that we're called to consider, is the church, brothers and sisters, where Christ's body, where his Spirit uh, dwells in our midst. God is building a holy temple, but not with bricks and mortar, but with people from every nation, treasures from all peoples. Churches might not seem impressive, but that's where God's glory is put on display for the world to see. The church is like a billboard demonstrating the glory and the majesty and the manifold wisdom of the Lord to the world. The church is far more glorious than any temple that ever existed because it's where Christ's glory and grace are put on display. So be strong. Be strong. Be strong, brothers and sisters. This is the work that God has called us to. It's to build up the church, to make disciples of all nations, to build up the saints into the likeness of Christ in maturity. Our version of the construction work that these brothers and sisters had is to evangelize. It's to disciple one another. And that's what Christ has called us to do. So brothers and sisters, boldly share the gospel with your friends and colleagues from all nations. Invest in meaningful, deep, spiritually intentional relationships within this church. Help each other to grow in following Jesus. Confess your sins to one another and seek to work to repent quickly. Pray for one another. Pray that God would build you up. One day our work will end and we'll dwell with God in a city that we heard in our call to worship at the beginning, a city with no temple for its temple is the Lord and his glory gives it light. Let's consider God's temple and how we can serve God's purposes of building his people up into a dwelling place for God until Christ returns. Now let's consider the third word that God gave. And you see there in verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider, from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This third word from the Lord is a call to consider our sin. Consider our sin. And this time God involves the priests in teaching his people by asking them a series of questions, getting them to consider something. These questions might seem strange to you because we don't follow the Levitical law today. God, I I mean, I, I wonder when was the last time you thought about touching meat in your garment with, you know, touching something unclean with it or holy meat? Probably not ever thought about that before, never considered that maybe. But God is asking them about carrying holy meat in your clothes. And he's saying, if you touch something with a garment, does that thing become holy? Does the holiness transfer? And the priest answers correctly. Thankfully, they knew. They said, no, that thing doesn't become holy. And then God asks, what about if someone who's unclean touches something clean? Does, does that become unclean? Is the uncleanness contagious? And again, the priests answer correctly. Yes, it becomes unclean. And then we get to the point of what the Lord is trying to say there in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. God's people have considered their ways in chapter 1, they've repented. They've begun to do the work that God had called them to of building the temple. And yet, and yet, God says, it's not enough. They're defiled. They're unclean. And because they're unclean, everything they touch, all of the works of their hands are defiled as well. It's like filthy rags spreading filth. God calls them to consider again in verse 15. What happened when you had forsaken building the temple? How did it go for you? We heard the answer already from chapter 1. The curses of the covenant came upon them. God blew away what they had. How's it going now, he says. Since the foundation of the temple has been laid, how is it going? Nothing had changed. They still had no produce. Why? Why? Because they were unclean. Because they were unclean. And even their best works of obedience were tainted by sin. Friends, your works are insufficient. Our works are important, right? We see that in chapter 1. He's saying, get on with the work that I called you to. But here we see that we can't trust in our good works. The fact that the people are part of a holy task of building God's temple doesn't make them a holy people. God wants them to consider their sin and to see how devastating it is. It pollutes everything. It goes deeper than they could imagine. And no amount of repentance or acts of obedience can remove the stain of sin from our hearts. We need something more. Sin pollutes everything, even our best efforts to please God are tainted. Sin brings the curse of death and God's righteous judgment, and so sin is serious. Sin goes deeper than we imagine, and its effects spread to every area of our lives. It's like this uh, disease like COVID spreading and infecting more and more parts of our lives. That's our greatest problem. And no amount of good deeds can cleanse our consciences, cleanse our hearts from sin. Because as we see here from the questions that he asked the priests, sin spreads more easily than holiness. And that's why they needed a temple. God had provided a way for sinful people to make atonement, to offer sacrifices. And there's a warning here for us. We must not trust in our obedience to God. We must not trust in the fact that we've been baptized or that we've joined a church or that we attend church regularly or that we read our Bibles faithfully. Even these good things cannot make us right with God. They cannot wash away the stain of sin. Did you see the depth of the problem of sin? Sin is serious. Holiness matters more than anything else more than our life situation, more than our physical comforts, more than our careers. They had prioritized earthly well-being over their relationship with God because they had forgotten how serious sin was. They had a low view of sin. And even now, even now as they turn back to God in obedience, as they do the right thing, God reminds them, your sin, your sin needs to be dealt with. It's only when we consider the seriousness of our sin that we understand God's holiness and our brokenness and our desperate need for grace. God himself must act to cleanse us and to make us righteous. We can do nothing apart from his grace and his mercy. On our own, we'd be without hope and we'd be headed for hell. But God promises grace. Did you see that at the end of verse 19? He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. No explanation. God is lavish in grace. God simply promises to bless his unclean people in spite of their sin. He promises them grace. And so, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, do you realize this about Christianity? That Christianity is not about trying to be a really good person so that God might accept you that God might forgive you. It's not about doing the right things in order to get a right standing before God. No, Christianity is, is the, sa- the same message for all of us, is that we are all sinners. And none of us, not one of us, could do enough good to earn ourselves a right standing with God. We all need God's grace to cleanse us from our sin. No amount of righteous deeds can undo sin. We needed God to act to cleanse us, and God has done so by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus has made a way for us to be cleansed by bearing our sin in Himself when He went to the cross and died the death we deserve for our sins. And he rose victorious from the grave to show that he had conquered sin and death. It's, he had conquered the grave. He had dealt with it. And that's why we can sing what we sang earlier. Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Through the blood of Jesus that was shed at the cross, Sinners can be washed white as snow. The stain of sin can be washed away. We can be clean through Christ. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. Our problem runs deep, but God's love and forgiveness, his mercy runs deeper. And friend, you can receive God's grace today. He offers it to all who see their need of his saving work, who know that they're unclean and want to be washed clean. Turn in faith and repentance to him today. Will you do that if you haven't done so already? Finally, let's consider the fourth and final word that God gave. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. My servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. These last concluding verses of the book of Haggai are a call to consider God's king. Consider God's king. God gives a fourth and final word, and this one is for the leader, Zerubbabel. He promises again to shake the heavens and the earth, but this time it's in order to overthrow and to destroy the kingdoms of the world, to establish his chosen servant Zerubbabel as his signet ring. This word here about the shaking of the heavens and the earth and the kingdoms, the downfall of the kingdoms, is a, it's a picture of God's righteous judgment that will come. And God speaks to Zerubbabel, and this is Zerubbabel who's the heir of David's throne, the rightful king of God's people, and he promises to make him like a signet ring. A signet ring was used by kings to seal royal documents as a sign of the king's authority. His seal was put on them. And here God is promising that Zerubbabel will be established as God's authoritative representative on earth, sealing God's standard. And with the restoration of God's house underway, God is reaffirming the promises that he made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would build David's house, he would build his dynasty forever. God is committed to keeping his covenant both with Israel and with King David to bless them and to give them an everlasting kingdom that will not be shaken God is reestablishing the throne of David and promising the heir, Zerubbabel, that he will be God's representative. And God's promise here restores the expectation of a Davidic son who will reign forever. That that expectation had been in doubt when they were conquered and taken into slavery. But now the Lord is reestablishing his promises and showing them he will have a king who will reign forever. Zerubbabel reigned and led God's people. He oversaw the rebuilding of the temple, but Zerubbabel died. But Matthew 1 tells us about his line. This Davidic line continued from generation to generation until the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this signet ring. Jesus is the perfect representative of God's authority because he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. And God's promises have unfolded throughout history and are fully being realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. King Jesus brings about the hope for God's presence and his blessing for his people. And the author of Hebrews actually reflects on this promise from Haggai. And he he tells us how we should respond. He says, let us be grateful, brothers and sisters, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Considering God's promises should lead us to grateful worship shown in lives devoted to God above all, making him the priority. And in Christ, because of his grace, all of our acts of worship now become acceptable worship to God. The the mar of sin is washed off of those works and they become pleasing and acceptable to God. God's word calls us to consider our ways and to consider God's glorious promises. Promises of his presence among us. Promises to put his glory on display through his temple, the church. Promises to bless and to cleanse his people from their sins by his grace. And promises to establish his everlasting kingdom through his chosen king, the Lord Jesus. Let's consider how we might live wholeheartedly for him. Faithful to the work that he's given us to do while we await King Jesus' return and the ultimate and final and perfect fulfillment of his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by how gracious you have been and shown yourself to be throughout history. Lord, though we fall so far short of what your glory deserves you extend grace you promise to bless you even give us the grace to repent and you by your spirit stir up our hearts to obey you to love you to live for you oh lord we give you praise for these things lord we praise you for your son the lord jesus who washes away our sin who reigns even now at your right hand and will come to judge the world and to reign for eternity. Oh Lord, we long for that day. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.